Hello, I'm Dr. Elisabeth Vanderweel, Apocalyptic Avatar. You're listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. Robin Renee, and this is The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. Hi, I'm Wendy Sheridan, and welcome to episode 129. <laughs> and I'm laughing because you have missed our other bad takes that happened before this. Anyway, <laughs> so this season, we are exploring aspects of democracy. We've been asking questions about how democracy works in the U.S. and elsewhere, and what we can do to preserve it and make it better or if we might be headed for better or for worse to a whole different kind of system, mm. right? So um, <laughs> we've heard about being part of local democratic committees, organizing and lobbying Congress for healthcare advocacy and the power of grassroots activism. And in this episode, we will have uh, Dr. Elizabeth Vanderweel, author of Apocalyptic Best Practices. And uh, she's back again to speak with us about how she copes with our current state of political affairs, how fear affects us, and her very challenging take on the nature of our democracy and where it's headed. So wow. please do stick around. Before that, I will be catching up with Robin and her creative endeavors in the artscape. So you should definitely hang around for that. <sighs> I'm nervous, but I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> so let's check in, Wendy. How are you doing? I'm I'm good. I'm good. The temperature seemed to, it was weird, uh, you know, here locally in New Jersey, like September happened and suddenly the heat wave went away. And so it's been very nice to be outside. I've been getting bitten up by mosquitoes. And attacked, well, not really attacked, but harassed by wasps. But one of my Facebook friends explained about that. And I probably should save it for a random fact, but uh, I don't know. (laughs) I want to know now. Okay, okay. (laughs) It's apparently in August, the wasps are kind of released from their servitude by the queen, who, like, is laid eggs for new queens and is hibernating or doing something it's like the wasp life cycle is the end of the summer that the queen is it they're not making more workers they're only making like the royal eggs and so they don't need as many workers and they're not getting fed anymore so they come out and they're looking for sugar like liquid sugar which is why they suddenly are showing up at your picnic I did not know that. I didn't know that either. <laughs> I, I forgive them now. <laughs> I mean, they were just, they didn't sting us, but we were trying to eat outside for the, you know, Labor Day barbecue stuff. And, and it was, there was just the one and it was flying around us at the table. And my daughter says, I can't deal with this. And we all had to go eat inside. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have been... I'm having a really weird morning. I'm having like ridiculous food cravings. I think maybe it's because I've been eating pretty healthfully and I've been feeling good. But for whatever reason, today I'm craving a 
like the a shitty soft pretzel with like <laughs> stuffed with cheese from Wawa. <laughs> like it's just like the not even good junk food, just like terrible junk food. <laughs> so I'm just trying to eat other things and not think about that because that's just not good. <laughs> I you know, I miss that's the one thing I miss living away from Philadelphia. You miss Wawa? <laughs> no, the street pretzels. Oh, those are good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think I would ever eat a cheese stuff. <laughs> yeah, don't. No. That whole concept is like, no. It's I mean, terrible. I think it's just, I don't know if I, maybe I dreamt of one or some shit. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's very funny. <laughs> oh, Rich made mac and cheese last night. And it's, you know, I mean, he makes this exquisite roux for the mac and cheese with like, you know, fancy, like three different kinds of cheddar. Or I don't even know. It's good. I like um, this. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the binding effects of cheese is quite pronounced in his mac and cheese. Ah. So I'm dealing with that. <laughs> this is way too TMI okay. for everyone. Now this Try, is... I won't talk about this anymore for the rest of the show. You can, you can relax now. <laughs> this, yeah, I, I, I would say that's actually for our, our Patreon. <laughs> and, and we're going to tell you about our Patreon. So, you know, a, a, you always can catch a new episode of The Leftscape. <laughs> Every other Wednesday, usually, except this one's coming out on a Thursday because we took a break. This was a good segue. I just have to throw that out there. (laughs) (laughs) You get a gold star for that one. (laughs) We took a break on Monday for Labor Day, so we're recording a day late. So you will get this show on a Thursday. But they usually come out on Wednesdays. And you can subscribe to the show on our website, leftscape.com, or find us anywhere you get your podcasts. And uh, when you're on our site, make sure you sign up for automatic downloads so you don't miss a show. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Leftscape. You can check out our show notes on the website, which features links for you to follow for our show guests and to get more information on the topics we discuss. While you're on the site, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, The Leftscape Lookout. Your downloads, likes, follows, and subscriptions really help us grow. We usually ask you to give us a review wherever you listen, but today we have a different ask. Today we're going to ask you that if you're on Facebook, please give us a like if you haven't, and then interact with our page. Like a post or make a comment. The more you interact with our page, the more you are likely to see when we post new shows, share news, and other content. We got to work that algorithm that they keep changing on us on a almost weekly basis now. That's right. That's right. And I'm going to try to get more active on Twitter, too. I like, well, I have a mixed relationship <laughs> with Twitter, but <laughs> I think we all do. But I like it. And, and uh, I want to try to be out there a little more, too. Uh, So you can follow us and retweet and all that shit there, too. (laughs) And as I promised, we do have a Patreon, and I'm going to tell you about that. As Patreon supporter, you can listen to our latest exclusive uh, episodes of We Should Be Recording This. And this August, we kind of kept it light. Well, we were talking about... You know, just stuff we've been watching and listening to and all that sort of thing. And I don't know what our September will be, but uh, if you join us at any time, you can always go back and listen to all of our past, very sometimes very deep, sometimes silly, sometimes TMI uh, Sometimes way episodes. TMI. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> if you want to know what our deep. kinks are, yeah, definitely <laughs> sign up for Patreon. That's right. I think you have a rewind from last show. Oh, I certainly do. 
I do. In our last episode in the Geekscape, and that's episode 128, I erroneously claimed that the Sandman comic was a Marvel property. It is not. It is published by Vertigo. And that explains to me the difference between the Endless in the Sandman Pantheon and Marvel's Eternals. And had I remembered this, I would have been a lot less confused watching the Marvel Eternals movie when it came out. So that's my rewind. I, uh... and All right. Yes. So now it's time for our three random facts and the news. And the first random fact uh, for me is not only an, an, an animal fact, it is also a weather fact. Dolbear's Law is named after Amos Dolbear, an American physicist and inventor. Dolbear published an article in his observations in the 1897 issue of the American Naturalist. The article was titled The Cricket as a Thermometer. Also in 1881, a good 16 years before he published this article, a woman, Margaret W. Brooks, also noticed the relationship between chirp rate and temperature. However, Brooks' findings only saw the light of day after Dolbear's article was published. So we have, you know, women scientists being f- overlooked until a man, like, confirms what she came up with. He mansplained it and suddenly it yeah. all made sense. Okay, great. <laughs> but anyway, if you want to figure out, you know, it, what this all is about is, is crickets, the rate of a cricket making noise, chirping is directly related to the temp- outside temperature. So the quick way to figure out what the temperature outdoors is using a cricket thermometer uh, is count the number of chirps that you hear in 14 seconds and add 40. And that will give you the temperature in Fahrenheit within a couple of degrees. And it's pretty accurate. That's I've, really cool. I've known this for a long time and I used to Usually it's just sort of like, is it cold out? And if I hear them slowly chirping, I say, yeah, it's kind of cold out. I don't, I have not actually counted with a timer to do this, but uh, apparently it's a thing. That's kind of cool. I might try that. I might try that either just outside around here or I'm going camping in a little while. So maybe I'll try it as a camping experiment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you got to pinpoint like one cricket chirping because usually it's this whole chorus of jillions of them. Yeah. That's usually how I hear it. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. Okay. My fact, which I got, it was inspired by Wendy's timeline because Wendy was doing a word puzzle that had this word in it, and <laughs> it made me curious. So, oh, that was the spelling bee on the New York Times yes. uh, word games page. Okay. <laughs> so the women's heptathlon first appeared in the Olympics in 1984. It consists of the 100-meter hurdles, the high jump, the shot put, the 200-meter dash, the long jump, the javelin throw, and the 800-meter run. Wow. That's a lot. That's impressive. Yep. What are the how much how long of a break do they give you between these events? I don't in in stuff like this. I think you get a break. I mean, if you're doing a triathlon, I don't think this. You know, you just jump. You just do the swim. I guess uh-huh. you have to dry off somehow, right? How do you dry off and then get on the bike? I've done them. I've done get it. on the bike wet. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I've done my sort of modified version of the of the sprint triathlon, and you know, I had to get to my next thing so it was not as it was not like the olympic version by any means whatsoever (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah i don't know how that all works that would be interesting but it's it's uh impressive yeah that was then that was the word i did not know and could not get because i didn't know it (laughs) and the 
third fact for today is another weather fact. The official Atlantic hurricane season lasts from June 1st to November 30th, though hurricanes can happen at any time of the year. And I didn't know that either. Uh, the forecasts here cover the Atlantic Basin, which is the Atlantic Ocean, Caribbean Sea, and Gulf of Mexico. Colorado State University is predicting an above average amount of storm activity for this year. Um, and in fact, right now, I believe there are two named storms in the Atlantic. Neither one uh, looked like it was going to make landfall in the U.S. They're heading up to the North Atlantic right now. And I, one of them is Danielle, and I think the other one is Earl, I think. Does that sound right? <laughs> I have not been very aware of news lately. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which leads me to the news. Yes. So my first bit of news is not very well researched. Because <laughs> what I know is that Biden made a speech at Independence Hall on Thursday, I believe Thursday, September 1st. And that sounds I, right. Yeah. And I know that it was really about the battle of the soul for the soul of our nation and how the MAGA Republicans are really doing a lot of damage to that endeavor right now. Yeah. And then, but I haven't watched it. I really want to watch it all because there's been such a fervor about this speech, good and bad, that I, I really want to catch up to it. But I know that a lot of people on the left are saying that it was really an important speech and sort of scary that it's necessary to talk about it, you know, and then others were just really angry and saying it was, you know, all kinds of wrong divisive and divisive and, and that's just like, thing. like the people who are being divisive are complaining that somebody else is being divisive. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's something that I definitely want to catch up with. And and the best thing about it so far that I can see are the, are the, Dark Brandon memes that they've, they've created. <laughs> Dark <from> Brandon <laughs> me. I I have I have not seen that. Oh, you don't. Oh, you don't know the Dark Brandon at all. Or no. Oh boy. Okay. Is he a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> it's a good. Oh my goodness. It's a good thing. Okay. It's you can't even explain it. You got to. <laughs> oh Wendy, you got to catch up. You got to catch up. <laughs> now basically. Uh, I don't know. Don't you can't really it. explain Dark Brandon, but it's like <laughs> the it's taking Biden and making him this kind of glowing eyed like robot for democracy kind of <laughs> okay like a Terminator I I type that, or something. But I, usually, when I see Brandon memes, I'm just scrolling past because I figured they're not they're not good. It's they're been it's been turned around and made really funny and kind of pretty cool actually. So okay. But they a lot of this is so dumb. This is really stupid news. <laughs> but uh, some on the right were complaining that the glow, like the glowing red light that was behind Biden when he was speaking, was made him. He was like demonic or something. Oh my god! And people were like, "Oh, so red is demonic? You should you should think about the color of your hat then." <laughs> so like it was just so stupid. But some people took that image and and turned it into some pretty cool memes. So. Anyway, oh, if God, it inspires that somebody, that's good. <laughs> that reminded me about the red-blue question that, <laughs> I guess we have to put that in another show. Yes. We're not talking about that today. That's a good, that's a good trivia, too. But yes, for another day. Okay. Okay. 
And this this news article, I'm calling it's from the Duh Files. <laughs> Someone did a study about doom scrolling, and they've actually found a, a correlation or a link to uh, doom scrolling and poor physical and mental health. Like, we didn't, like, you couldn't have just figured that out on your own. Anyhow, uh, the highlights of this study, about 27% of respondents scored high on five problematic news consumption dimensions listed by the researchers. And they are becoming absorbed in news content, being preoccupied with thoughts about the news, attempting to reduce anxiety by consuming more news, finding it difficult to avoid the news, and having news consumption interfere in their daily life. And those with the higher levels of problematic news consumption were significantly more likely to experience poor mental and physical health, the survey found, even when controlling for demographics, personality traits, and overall news use. So don't doom scroll anymore. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, it, it, it sounds, you know, you're saying it's the duh files, but it's really something that you, I have found it really helpful to be reminded of. Okay. You know, because I do get absorbed in things and I can get worked up about something before I really realize why am I even reading this thread? <laughs> you know, because like I got the news and then you keep, keep going and it's just people arguing and complaining about it yeah. for the next 50 posts or something. And it's like, that's not. Oh God, I never read the comments. I have learned never ever read the comments yeah well i mean it's a little yeah i don't really on youtube twitter is different because it's following a conversation and right, sometimes it right. becomes like that but it's like it's it's good to like i can trip the wire that tells me to stop doing that if i hear you know a report like this and that it, it actually helps okay and there's um there's a podcast called offline with john favreau where he really starts to talk about he talks about this issue with a lot of different people who have good things to say about not only just getting offline but other things that they do but they also talk about how online is a tool but is problematic in this way and it's really it's good stuff to think okay. about so thank you sure cnn apparently has a new owner warner brothers discovery owns them now and the new powers that be are seem to be turning it away from what is being seen as a liberal bias at CNN. So which is not a liberal bias. They're one of on the on that chart, the media integrity chart or where the hell media it is. Media bias, it, yeah. That thank you. CNN is usually a little left of center. A little left of center. Yeah, they're not the the way they've been perceived and I agree that they're not so extreme. You know, they they have opinion people but their news i think is is fairly their news ahead. is actually news and not infotainment like fox right right but unfortunately they have canceled a long-running show of reliable sources and anchor brian stelter was let go and people are really really angry about it oh yeah well i can't i i well there's more to this media amoeba Right. That that is just. I mean, I have been reading what what is this group has been doing to HBO Max. Mm -hmm. They've pulled. They well, first they canceled that Batgirl, the Batwoman movie, 
Right. I, that was, I didn't that know why that was. That $90 million dollars that, and it was ready to be released, and they just said, fuck you, it's in the vault, no one's ever going to see it. That was the first thing they did. And then they pulled, I mean, these aren't shows that I watch specifically, but they pulled a whole lot of cartoons that feature queer characters, and and they canceled a couple of shows. And I'm, cons- I mean, I have, I've subscribed to HBO since it was available on cable TV, you know, I mean, this is how long I've been, that's been my main movie network for most of my life at this point. And they're going to make it this, cons- you know, they, they, I read this article where they were saying, you know, the, the demographics for HBO Max are, you know, I, younger people, you know, like thir- like millennials and Gen Z. And the people who watch Discovery Plus are all old mega people, you know. So they want to make HBO more appealing to this, this group of old people who I, by age, I'm actually in, but I have no desire to see any of the shows on the Discovery Channel. I mean, maybe when they first when they first start, when that channel first came up, it was a very, you know, it was like a science channel. That's what I think of it as, but it's but been a no, long time it's, since it's, I've It's like it. shows like Duck Dynasty and, and oh. you know, old old rednecks being <laughs> jerks in the woods kind of things. <laughs> old rednecks being jerks in the woods. <laughs> That's got to be, well, if it, it, it was a t-shirt, we'd get in trouble, but it should be a t-shirt. <laughs> anyway so yeah this is not this is not a good thing and i am very (laughs) i'm very unhappy about this merger and i keep wondering when the hell this happened i know they're like right now i I was reading this morning that the sec or there's some court there's there's a battle in court that is trying to stop a merger of like two of the big book publishing houses that mm. they want to happen right now. I, and I didn't know that Viacom, CBS, <laughs> like this, these used to be two separate companies, but now, you know, Viacom uh, bought CBS probably years ago. So Viacom, CBS owns this one publisher, and I'm not sure if it's Simon & Schuster or, you know, it's one of the big ones. And they wanted to sell their pu- that publishing company off and another publish another big company you know uh, it's not McGraw Hill but it's one of the, the right, right now there's only five major publishing companies and one of them wants to buy the other one which is going to turn it into four and there's a, a court battle about it because uh, the antitrust people are saying this is not they don't want it's this to happen much, yeah and the uh, music business has been similar where it just keeps well all of the all of the medias yeah. the me you know these media conglomerates are you know I mean and we're, and we're seeing we're seeing the bad side of this with this Warner Brothers, AOL, AOL, Time Warner, HBO, Discovery, Merger, Amoeba thing, you know, that they, they also now own CNN. And I, I worry about, are we going to lose John Oliver on HBO? Uh, 
I hadn't you even know? thought of that. That's really sad. Because he's pretty liberal. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you think? <laughs> I, 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 and he's been off the air for the last two weeks. I'm really, and I know he's uh. been, he's been uh, ragging on AT and T as his business daddy. Right. But now he has a new business daddy, and I really want to hear what he has to say about that, and if he will survive, if his show will survive. Yeah, he will survive somewhere. Yeah, I hope it's he remains there for sure. Yeah, I mean, he has a nice budget to fuck with things. Right. <laughs> so Politico also was apparently was sold to a German conservative at the end of 2021. Uh-huh. And that seems to be, I guess, they're, they're starting to make changes. Oh, with my God. That outlet now, too. And uh, again, I've been... I've been slight on keeping up with news, but what I do see is usually like a Twitter outrage, and then I try to mitigate what that with <laughs> some other realities too, and try to figure out how how real it is, basically. Yeah. But anyway, that is well, definitely a trend yeah. with the media companies being sort of shifting. So uh, yes. you mentioned the media bias chart, and I just wanted to put that out there again that it's a really good idea to revisit, like keep. Checking it periodically, you know, where yes. the w- what are the outlets you're watching and listening to, like where they sort of fall in terms of their bias, how and not only in terms of left or right, but how reliable are they? Right. Because there are some, you know, left leaning things that I would not want to really read or retweet because they're kind of Looney Tunes, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I have to right now put a plug in for Dame Magazine, mm-hmm. uh, which is an online magazine, damemagazine.com. They are an independent news outlet. We had their publisher uh, on for an interview, you know, it's like season one or season it's two, been a like while, yeah. years ago. I, I, might, I probably should get her back on the show. But, you know, they're struggling every day because they never have enough money to pay their reporters. So, you know, go check them out and subscribe to them or donate to them. They can use every dollar you send them. Yes, It's absolutely. at damemagazine.com. Nice. So, yes, that was an unsolicited ad. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Thank you for that. Sure. Uh, and the next news item is, I have a couple in there, I guess... There, uh, I, you know, in this media landscape in, or news landscape, this is like old news, but I don't know how much press this got. In the last week of August, students at American University in Washington, D.C. arrived for their first day of school to find their faculty on strike. The very same day, the incoming freshmen gathered for their welcome address. The university president got up to speak, but before they could utter a single word, a shout of, pay your workers, rang out in the audience, and damn near the entire freshman class got up and left, marching out to stand beside their faculty in front of the president's office. Faced with the specter of an entire student body refusing to go to class, the university immediately caved to the faculty demands. That's and ended the strike. Amazing. I did yeah. not know that happened. Yeah. Bravo. Um, and, and also, we just had Labor Day. So, I was going to say, it's kind of perfect. Unions, <laughs> strikes, <laughs> workers unite. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I also need to talk about the Alaska special election, which is also old news because it actually happened on August 16th. But we have to acknowledge the first indigenous woman elected to Congress ever. 
Mary Peltoa has won a special election to become the first Alaska Native and first Alaskan woman elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. She is from the Yupik people, and I don't know, there's a, a, an apostrophe in there, and I don't know how to do that in pronunciation, if there's a glottal stop in there that I can't, I have to actually hear somebody say it. So anyway, this election is also notable for being the first ranked choice voting election held for a federal office. And Representative Peltoa will have to stand for election again in November, running against the two Republicans she already beat in the special election to fill the seat of the late Representative Don Young, who died earlier this year. And that's why they were talking about Sarah Palin losing, but she's still in the running for the the general, right? Right, because it's a special election. And I don't know how many of our listeners understand about ranked choice voting. I kind of have a good feeling, a good sense of it, because this is how we choose. This is how we choose the winners for the Hugo Awards in in the World World Science Fiction Convention. It was it's been ranked choice voting for as long as I've been voting for Hugo Awards. And what that means is you have your whole slate of candidates and you order them in, you know, your first choice, your second choice, your third choice, and all the way down. And you don't always have to pick, you don't always have to put a number by every candidate either. And what happens is if they first they count all of the number one votes. And if there is no clear winner out of that, then they look at everybody's second choice. You know, and it keeps going down and down and down. I think it is a fairer way to pick a winning entity than what, you know, our current thing is. I like the idea because I feel like you'd start to pay more attention to the whole host of ideas that someone has and not just cult of personality. Right. You know, so you really have to think further into it, which indeed. Yes. And, and I will say in the 2015 world con, no award won several categories. There was some contention and people, there were people who were trying to influence how the vote was going and there were, there was a lot of, there was a lot of uh, upset and people arguing about shit well before the, uh, the votes were all counted. It was like a conservative liberal schism in the science fiction community. And so they no, wrote in no, no winner? So, well, no award is always a choice. Oh, okay. In, the, in that particular election, you know, in Worldcon voting for Hugo Awards. No award is always a choice. No award won because they were, you know, when you when you do the nominations, I think there was some, I don't know how they managed to rig it, but it was like there was a bunch of old white men who were getting very upset that women and people of color were winning the Hugos and they were trying to do something about that. And (sighs) the rest of the people basically said, fuck you. So that's how that happened. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but that really, you know, you really learn about ranked choice voting when you get into situations like this. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. I just have one other bit of local-ish news. Edie Weinstein, who we've had on the show, she is known as the Bliss Mistress. And uh, Joanne Petron started, an, uh, uh, well, it's a Facebook group, but it's also a sort of a movement, I guess you can say, 
and it's called Bucks County Kind. And it's all about inspiring one another to do random acts of kindness. And that's hmm. in, you know, it's it's in Pennsylvania right now. I don't know if it's slated to expand other places or whatever, but it seems it seems really cool and just just positive, you know? Like you may not be able to solve every world shattering problem like in one fell swoop, but you can make somebody's day a little nicer, buy them something, leave them a gift, you know, all just small things like that. And I kind of like it. And so yeah. they've, they've got a Facebook group. They've, they're featured on 6ABC if you're in the Philly area. And they're, they're going to be interviewed by some other outlets coming up next month and everything to Doyle's Town Patch and the Cardinal and things like that. So it's nice when people just want to do positive stuff in the world. So that makes me happy. So if we were looking for the Facebook group, we would type in Bucks County Kind. Bucks in, County Kind, yes. In the search bar on Facebook. That's right. And it. I will I will link it in our show notes as well. Okay, too. cool. Yeah. And uh, that's all the news we're going to handle today. Are you helping someone run for office? Are you running for office yourself? Going to a protest and can't think of what to write on your sign? Are you tired of seeing BLM or Let's Go Brandon? Then you want the Sloganator. We at the Leftscape have curated a special set of slogans for your next protest or campaign. Visit leftscape.com sloganator and voila! You'll receive a fresh new slogan for your sign. That's leftscape.com sloganator. Welcome to the Artscape, where one of us interviews the other one. And today, it is my privilege to interview Robin. So, hi, Robin. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good. <laughs> so, what do you have for us today? Well, I have been very just, just, uh, I, I can't explain it. I've done a few things. I got together with an old bandmate, Brian, who I used to be in a band called The Loved Ones with, and we did some jamming and came up with a whole lot of ideas, and then we haven't followed up with each other, so I'm sort of mildly frustrated with myself and not not trying to beat myself up about it, but we need to get on it, you know? Because yeah. I really did have intentions to do a lot of songwriting in the last few several weeks and months and that did not happen so i'm sort of i'm both uh sad about it but not really because i understand what's bubbling under the surface and the other things i'm working on so that's those are good some of its health stuff some of its other creative stuff that's just been in my midst mm -hmm. so i started writing there's been there's, you know, there's topics of race that I've needed to write about for a long time. And I've always been like really afraid of it in a lot of ways. And there was an incident, an experience that happened right kind of right before the pandemic hit that felt like the, felt like a starting point for what I need to be writing. And I've finally gotten a little bit of that out mm. and I'm scared to share it, but I would like to share it. Sure. Don't be scared. Okay. All right. 
So this is called Love Night, February 14th, 2020. This is the night, the night for love, the artificial one to make you eat chocolate buttercream and blush at roses. Buy, consume, foregone conclusion, lovemaking. I have no such partner this night. I have my rock and roll game on. Throwback mini dress over tight leggings that hug my ass and ankles. Pink and red fuzz coat. I'm a punk rock bunny femboy tonight. <laughs> Unironic, contrary to current style. I would wear this happily any cold day of the rock calendar year. Parking is easy. I show up west of Philly with an intent to enjoy and in each step, a late night outs way. My friend and his band took the stage first. He was black leather, fishnet Bowie beautiful. I took pictures, enough to capture the gist of the evening, but not enough to miss the sound. It is the music I love and the music I've missed. The music that has been so painfully absent in me. Afterward, he sat with me over beers and she told me who she really was. I was startled, perhaps more visibly than I wish. The words, I'm trans, baby, looped in my head. I'm happy for her. My forever silent long-time infatuation turned around and around as she spoke, a tumbling stone, maybe polished one day, certainly changed. Sometimes a woman is a woman and always has been. But that is another story for another time. Here's the heart of the matter. It was the next band that pulled me into joy. Dive bar dancing. I am swept up in sound and movement, angular knee and elbow, skip, jump, rocker, running man in motion. There is the magic, this dance, two-tone arrows of passion floats from floor to stage, determined, grand beats bang back from stage to floor. This dance has happened before and before and before. It is a communal mantra, a social contract stamped and signed, a long moment of shining no self. When I'm in my body, there is peace. Where else? How else to be but embodied? I forget the notion that I am some amorphous thing poured into a vessel of elastic skin. Who has said these things and how do they believe it? Have they been out skanking to the ska beat on a Valentine's Friday night? I am no thing or one thing that grooves, sleeps, fucks and calculates, creates, defines, dives in and dips out of crowds and silences. This crowd is doing it. I am motion. Love is. A voice somewhere deep. What is this? This is ska. What are you doing? Dancing to it, carefree. Uh, oh no, oh no, you are not. I move my Doc Martens, swing my arms, Sweat, sweet, sweat. Voice sputters. This is ska. It was once reggae, stolen. I bob up and down in fluffy red and pink. This coat, this statement, piece of whimsy, of see me. Voice. This song was stolen, mutated, mutilated through ages. These white boys. I stop. Slapped asleep. The band cranks out sounds that move my being. My feet step again, slowly. Voice, 
Stop dancing, you traitor. I stop. I grab another colonizer's beer. This night began with so much promise. Long ago, I learned to meet cold eyes with punk defiance. On this love night, the eyes are all imagined. They glare, then squint, never really turn away. I know how wrong I am by how much they burn from inside out. I still don't steel myself to meet these eyes. Now I understand the old hallmark adage, and oh, if only I could dance like no one is watching. Wow. There's a huge amount to unpack in that. <laughs> yeah. Critiquing poetry is definitely something that's way outside my wheelhouse. But I have a question about, I'm assuming that the voice is your inner voice. There's not like an external person judging your dancing, that this is something that, that the the... The you, as in the writer of the poem or who, you know, the, the person this poem is about, it's their inner voice judging them. Am I correct with that? Yes. There was no person there that night that was saying anything, but there are all the voices from all the many, many years of shit I've heard. Mm. That, okay. That was, that's so this in is there. internalized critiques that that you have basically you've internalized it mm -hmm. yeah and it's something that I know that there's an aspect of racial experience and tension that I've most need to write about you know the sort right. of you're not seeing what you should see or you're not being properly black or something like that, you know, right. that has really, I think that has held me back incredibly actually. And it's, it also feels very scary to write about and kind of embarrassing. Like I feel like it not the problem that people think is the most important problem. And so I should be quiet about it or something like that. And it's, you know, I, I think that this is one of the things that has has been holding me back because I, I even though I'm not conscious of it, I probably second guess myself all the time in terms of what I'm doing and what and why and what I should like and or not. And so it's one of those things that has bubbled up to be really pertinent, like really what I mm. must write about. So this is the first attempt and, and it's, you know, it's poetic and maybe really more of a prose intro of some type. But I want it to be a much longer piece. And that's, that, that night really encapsulated something that has happened to me many, many times in my life. Mm. You know, where but I, I also, yeah. yeah I, I, I also think that, that your experience is not unique. I, I think there's probably other people that, that have that same range of, I guess it's the self-doubt. I think it could be categorized as that. Mm hmm You know, like, I'm, you know, I, I shouldn't be enjoying something that I'm enjoying because of its history or its, you know, 
and I, and I think that you know that kind of a thing, even you know that uh, that could even transcend race. Mm-hmm. You know, because I think about these things too. That it's, and I hate using the W word now, um, but it, it's sort of part of waking up to these issues. It's it's like things that you used to just enjoy or ignore that suddenly now that you're aware of it, it's like, oh, yeah, well, this this episode of this old TV show really is problematic and <laughs> I don't really want to watch it anymore, you know, and it's something that you used to like a lot and, and now you can't really. Yeah, I think the W word, that's really funny. Um, <laughs> I don't, and I think that's something I take exception to. I think it's good to be aware and I also think there's a real psychological damage that happens in, and creative damage that happens in disallowing things based on, especially based on someone else's assessment of your, how, how you should or, or, or should not view something or experience it. Mm. Um, I think so much music happens because of blending and collaboration and, Sometimes that has involved imperialism in some part of it <laughs> along the way. It's probably, that's a fact of our world, you know. But I don't know that that, to me, I don't know that that's a formula for now I have to stop liking everything. And that, that has actually been more damaging to me over time, what's, what's disallowed for mm. me by other people's assessments. And so that's something that I'm really trying to really look at clearly in its face and 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 struggle with it or or move through it in some way, you know. So it's deep. So it's deep work. I don't know the, the this rendition of it. I mean, it's you know, it's a first draft and I'm not used to reading my first drafts out loud, but I well, think thank it, you for for sharing and opening yourself up like that. That's that's a lot. Yeah. Thank you. It is. You know, I think that for me, the project is to keep going with it and let it go where it leads. And it's time to look yeah. at it. You yeah, know, because I'm... I'm tired of not being all of myself based on these voices. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I have... Music is is like its own category because for me, I mean, I have always wanted to incorporate things I hear from other cultures all the time. I mean, I mean, that's like that gives me so much joy to, you know, to take like an Indian tabla beat and put it in what would be be considered western music you know because i i find i find these things you know they're those kinds of rhythms extremely interesting you know intellectually and and it it's not you know just a four beat you know on the one and three and it's nothing it's it's got syncopation it's got all this complexity to it that you know, isn't 
always apparent in what is considered, you know, Western classical type music, you know, and, and, uh, and if we are suddenly disallowed to do that, I mean, how do you, how do you do that? I mean, that <laughs> you way... just have a klezmer band, that's all, <laughs> or something, right? <laughs> I don't know. It, it's even hard to say. I mean, klezmer music kind of sounds ska-like in a lot of... Re- in Actually, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> you know, if you put Full the circle. right instruments together, it, it's a very ska kind of sound. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it doesn't even actually make sense at a certain point because, like, what, 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 what would I be allowed to play if I was only in like some particular culture? Like, it has to be—is it the culture that somebody sees me as, or is it all of the percentages of my family makeup? I can <laughs> do add things. That, you know, I mean, it's, it, it actually—you can only use. Yeah, uh, the violin in in three out of seven songs. Right, right, you exactly. <laughs> it becomes it becomes absurd so quickly if you think about yeah, that well, kind I, of stuff. I, that I way. think all of modern music history is is a fucking synergy of everything. You know, we have the globe. the The Earth has has become this global community in at least that respect. Yeah. You know. If not in music, because that's that's the language that transcends verbal language. And, you know, and it's something that people all over the world can understand. And we we humans synergize things. Yeah, we do. And, and, and I love that. And I love the feeling of being c- like complete absorption in music. That's really I've written that things like that before about it's like Kirtan. It's like just being fully embodied, fully impassioned in something. Mm-hmm. And music can do that for me. And those moments are so rare and so amazing. And that's, yeah. that's worth pursuing to yes. me, no matter where that comes from. If you feel that, that's, where, that's something to follow. Yeah, yeah. So, But I, I enjoyed listening to the rhythm and the and the flow of your talk and as you were reading you know i mean we're on an audio only but you just had this beautiful smile on your face for like the whole time so that was that was lovely to see and if i had like a written copy of this we could sit here and say okay well in this stanza you talked about this and we could we could explore <laughs> other <laughs> other things which you know when you have a, a second or f- further draft of it if you want to do that we could we could uh have a poetry moment with robin yeah yeah i'm gonna keep <laughs> going with this uh and uh we'll see where it goes but i will we'll yeah. do that i mean i liked you know it started out like with this you know really hopeful joyous thing and then and then it was turned into all of this i i want to call it self-doubt but it's not it's it's the it's the uh the shoulds yeah it's um it's psychological it took that turn (laughs) it's like i mean i don't know what to call it's really psychological damage over Mm -hmm. a long time and it sucks to have it and i'm so i'm gonna try to stop being scared of writing about it well thank you for being brave and and doing it in the first place and sharing it with us in the second place 
Thank you. I'm here with Elizabeth Vanderweel. Elizabeth Vanderweel, PhD, is the author of Apocalyptic Best Practices, a unique approach to fear and change. She also works as organizational development specialist for Pioneer Human Services and principal consultant at Hand in the Dark Consulting, as well as volunteer librarian for the Whidbey Institute. When she isn't doing one of those things, she's expanding her amigurumi crochet repertoire, playing with her dog, or discussing the finer points of Star Trek. And we are uh, we are definitely big fans, especially Wendy is a huge fan of Star Trek, so that goes with this show very well. <laughs> and she was also our featured guest way back in episode 67, To Be Free With Fear. So welcome back. This is very cool to talk way with you again. back in the day. <laughs> this is so that's right. Yes, yes. Um, so we talk from time to time on the show about how we manage dealing with, you know, the fire hose of news. We kind of actually talk about that every show in one way or another. And um, the just the general madness of our political landscape. And you mentioned a while back when we were catching up um, that history helps you. And I'm wondering how that how that works for you. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so I'm not particularly a history buff, but I I can't even remember how I discovered a podcast called Esoteric Political History. Uh, it's hosted by a journalist and two history professors, and it looks at these occurrences that most of us don't know about, but have huge repercussions. Like I'm thinking about one, I think just dropped yesterday. It's called Lyndon B. Johnson's Mysterious Box 13 and how there was some very likely shenanigans in the election in 1948 that landed him in the Senate. And that this, this box of votes that put him over the top against his opponent was very likely completely fabricated in this Texas, rural Texas County. And so just talking about that within context of the time of the political machine that is the U.S. and that understanding that this is a pattern and a progression in this nation over time helps me put in perspective the shenanigans that are going on right now. That like a a president that did great things like the Voting Rights Act of 65 was also the guy that had to pull some strings to get elected in the first place. Mm Mm-hmm. That sounds like a fascinating story. <laughs> wow. So so how does that make you look at things now? Just sort of understanding that there it's kind of as as it ever was or something like that? In a, in an odd way for me it takes the pressure off. For a long time I was very impassioned. I'm a member of the League of Women Voters, uh, political activist. And it didn't seem to make any difference. Like 
a lot of times the people I vote for do not win. And listening to this history, listening to how things have operated over time helps me understand that it's not my fault, even as I am participating in the process that is recommended that we all do. So it gives me perspective in sort of the long view of political activism rather than staying focused on this one vote or this one issue or this one office, taking the long view of we're, we're, we're tacking toward a more perfect union. This is, this is the goal over time and we're taking a very stumbling, meandering path getting there. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's it's this day in esoteric political history, right? So it's talking about something each day that, that a show drops, is that right? Correct. Uh, so the, the day that this dropped was the day of this primary that decided Lyndon B. Johnson's political career because they suppose their get they also have guests on the show and their guest was the head librarian at the Lyndon B. Johnson Library. So he knows a lot about <laughs> Lyndon B. Johnson. And on this day was that primary and they were saying that if this was his second run at office and if he didn't make it, his business and his wife's business were doing really well probably would not have continued with a political career, probably would have just gone right into business. Wow. Okay. See, that's so funny. I, I feel like I should know a lot more about LBJ than I do. Then. So that's, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So what else on this show has helped or moved or amused you? Or are there any particular things that sort of keep you? It's the, I, get, I get the overall perspective, but have there been yeah. insights like that? So... One thing that, it wasn't exactly a theme, but something that kept coming up on quite a few shows in the last six months was 1968. And what a just garbage fire that our country was going through. And it's not dissimilar from what we're dealing with now. They didn't have a pandemic but they did have a crazy war and they had people being assassinated left and right. There were other things that were going on that I can't bring to mind at the moment, but it was a very crazy time. And people, you know, similar to now are like, this, this country's breaking apart. We're going to have a civil war. There's no way that our country can survive all of these tensions. There's no way we're going to resolve this. We're just coming apart at the seams. And that is resonant with now, too, that we have such polarity, so many tensions, violence breaking out in different ways. To me, more horrific, because rather than single individuals, people are now doing these mass shootings that could not, I think, have been imagined in 1968. But it's that, again, that theme of we have such divisiveness we're in such throes of change that there is a large status quo contingent that is digging in hard and not wanting anything to change. And this groundswell 
of people who have been marginalized and abused in the status quo that are pushing and writing that change forward and how that tension is being met and the you know the the cries of dissolution the cries of where you know they're not real americans or things like that it's very similar and what happened in our country coming out of that brought us the you know the 70s and a lot of environmental movements the endangered species act all those environmental um, supports that we got ironically enough with nixon <laughs> and nobody remembers nixon as basically the environmental president but he's the one that supported a lot of those that that legislation and that got moved through on his administration and that there's something really it's not exactly comforting but there's something really engaging with surfing these changes to see what is going to emerge on the other side because I think we're going to be different in the 2030s I think we're going to be very different than we are now there's there's you know the the specter I don't know, specter I don't know if that's the right word but the the overwhelming awareness of climate change that cannot be denied at this point that again in 1968, they weren't dealing with, but they were, you know, it was still in the middle of the Cold War and, you know, imminent nuclear annihilation was a lot of, on a lot of people's minds. So it's a similar sort of existential threat that we can't conceive. Right. And the first Earth Day was 1970. So there was this sort of idealistic idea that we can all hold hands and pick up aluminum cans and change everything for the better, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that was, at least it was sort of on the horizon at that point anyway. So I admit that it is pretty easy for me to think apocalyptically about everything that's going on. And your book is Apocalyptic Best Practices. (laughs) So I have a feeling you have even more words of wisdom about all of this. So as a fear expert, what do you think the role of fear is in our current politics? And you might want to give us a brief kind of refresher on your take on fear and what it's, what it's doing for us. Yeah. So for the, the basic function of fear is to get us to pay attention. I mean, it is our attention emotion And when we can use it well, it helps guide us to address what is most important. And when I'm talking about fear, I'm talking about our daily, you know, engaging with things that could possibly be threatening. I'm not talking about like serious mental illnesses or serious trauma. We all deal with fear every single day. And that's a good thing. That's part of what's helped keep our species alive. But what's happened, particularly in the political realm, and how the political realm is engaging and overlapping with the realm of capitalism and marketing, is our fear is being weaponized against us. So if we think about, you know, we've this 
era has been called having an attention economy. Our attention is being bought and sold. And if fear is our attention emotion, the surest way to get our attention is to scare us. And during the previous administration, anytime some craziness shot up out of the White House, I'm like, okay, everybody's paying attention to that. What are they getting away with in the back room that we're not noticing because the scariness is being thrown up over here? So for the most part, you know, what I recommend in apocalyptic best practices is to listen to your fear and follow it. But that gets really broken when we're talking about the political realm or the realm of the economy. Again, because that basic emotion that has kept us alive is being weaponized to our own detriment. And in my book, I kind of take folks on a journey through peeling that back so you can reclaim your fear for your own benefit rather than being someone else's commodity. So when you have fear around what's happening in the political realm, whether it's at the national or the local level, I, for myself, I have tried to pull back from that realm and observe it as if it has nothing to do with me. And that helps dial down the fear, particularly during the last administration and some during this one too. The things that happen on the national scene are after effects of things that have already happened in my local realm. So when they're you know, passing legislation or struggling with, you know, what the Supreme Court's going to do next. Looking back at, I am very privileged to live in Seattle that has been declared a sanctuary city for women's reproductive rights. And we've also noticed, I've noticed that we also are now seeming to be receiving climate refugees. A lot of people moving here from California and the Midwest and Texas because it's just too hot where they are and they're coming to Seattle. And wow. now other people are, are, are having their rights stripped away. And so they're coming to Seattle where it is a better place to be. So even though what's happening in Seattle and to a lesser extent in the state of Washington is different than what's happening in other places, it's still affecting us. So when I can dial in and look at what I can lay my hands to, like literally in my geography, it helps dial down and focus my attention on things that I can actually do something about and that are important for my life day in and day out. Mm-hmm. That that makes a lot of sense, definitely. So I, I guess my the observation that I've had about fear and our politics is that it's almost entirely driven by what I consider like a negative aspect of fear. People afraid of immigrants or afraid of queer people or or whatever. And then on the left, I mean, just being afraid of rising, you know, totalitarianism or or the, the power that is is 
coming into play that is more and more dangerous for people who are different in in many ways, you know? And I don't like that feeling that I'm acting out of fear. I mean, I know people who are leaving the country, for example, you know, things like that. And I'm not there yet, but but I'm afraid. I have a fear in me that I'm doing the wrong thing for not preparing for something, some impending doom somehow. And it's like, it feels toxic, but I also know that there are times to listen to fear. Like you said, it keeps you alive. You know, it can. So mm-hmm. is, uh, so I, I, I hear you about sort of like looking at the, the larger, like looking at the larger picture from afar and doing what's immediate is one thing, but, and I guess I should say, does that take away the acting out of sort of primal fear and voting out of like voting against the thing you're afraid of and you know fear, trying to figure out if I you need to go to Canada like there's that kind of like constant anxiety so do you think that's this part of the solution to changing that and then what do you do about the, the people who are seem bound to act out of fear they just really mm-hmm. the whole you know, campaigns are based on it, I think. Right, right. And that's, that's a a real thing. Um, People who have been in survival mode for a long time, who have a worldview that is being threatened, their, their existence, their, their value as a human is feeling threatened. That is part of that rhetoric. So when we're thinking about, you know, what could happen. That's that's a really interesting thing about fear that people often don't realize is that fear only happens in the future. If what you're afraid of, if the U.S. becomes a totalitarian state next week, you're not going to be afraid of that anymore. You're just going to be dealing with living in that state. And to a certain extent, that's boiled frog syndrome. But at the same time, it's, you know, one of the books that I often refer to is called The Gift of Fear. And the author's name is escaping my brain. Oh, yes. Gavin DeBecker. Um, He talks about the fact that you are afraid is proof positive that what you're afraid afraid of has not happened. While it may have happened in the past and you don't and you're afraid it might happen again what you're afraid of has not happened and we are extraordinarily talented creatures in imagining ourselves into the future i do hold a lot of value and understanding of how relationship defines our reality and how we relate with each other, how we relate with the information that we're taking in. And when we can change our minds, we can literally change the future. And so if fear is only only exists in the future, if you change your mind about fear, you're changing the future. Mm-hmm. So in a practical sense, 
what would that mean like for the next election cycle for example it meets so this is one of my mantras do what you can with what you have where you are um i know as a young adult i got very upset about world disasters that were going on that i sent tons of money to these relief efforts around the world and i don't know what if any difference that made if it just ended up in in some despot's coffers or or if it actually helped the child not die but what i do know is that i can have a conversation with a young man who is sure that everybody is out to get him and he needs to go buy a gun and talk with him and assure him that I am not out to get him, that some of these things that he's perceiving, he's seen through a lens that has been distorted and help him understand that he has the power to change his relationship with the world around him, that it does not need to be what he believes it to be. Not to say that you have to, you know, think Pollyanna thoughts and your abusive relationship or the person that's stalking you will magically go away. That that's bullshit. Nobody should live in, in that way. You're, that's, that's a way to die. But if you are constantly believing that the world is out to get you, you, you are creating that real reality whether it is true or not for other people, if that makes sense. Is that part of the work that you do at Pioneer Human Services? Deal with specific um, situations like yeah. that? Yeah, so a lot of the work that I do there, I'm, I do a lot of work with um, training and learning. And part of what we're doing is helping people understand unconscious bias. Uh, it's a big part of our work. So Pioneer Human Services, provides wraparound services for formerly incarcerated people. Over half of our employees are formerly incarcerated. We're all about that second, third, fourth chance. People want to turn their lives around. We, we're there to help that happen. And these the folks end up in prison not because they, it was a goal. It's usually some massive trauma. And a lot of fear has ha happened for them. And there are biases that are informing their interactions with other people. And for employees, adjusting for that is really important for continued success, as well as the employees who have never been incarcerated to adjust any biases they have about how people are integrating into the workplace and the kind of workplace we want to provide for everyone to be, you know, healthy and thriving. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the big question I have really is, what do you think is the future of our democracy? And mm. are, can any of these tools save it? Do we want to do something new? Like, what do you, what do you, what is your real sense about that? I have a complicated relationship with democracy. <laughs> I just, uh, I'm reading a book called The Unwritten Book by Samantha Hunt. I highly recommend it. It is a, it is a very long meditation reflection about death and possibilities that were not realized. 
And within this book, she quotes, she provides a quote that someone, some say that the U.S. is broken, but it's not. It was designed by white privileged male slaveholders, and it is functioning exactly as it was designed. And I think that is largely true. Those men had ideals that would serve them and the people that they valued that were like them, that were different than other nations at the time. And they could not imagine the huge nation we have now. And indeed, democracy, what they based their model on was a small city in Greece, again, run by privileged males and not including anyone else. And particularly, like in the U.S., we're, get, we're expanding voting rights and taking them away, expanding them and taking them away. And I, and I think about, like, children who have to live in a world that is decided by adults and they have no say in it. Is that democracy? Well, by, by definition from Athens, yes, because children in the U.S. are considered property of the government. That's why the government can take your children. And I don't think that democracy works at scale. I think it works like the Iroquois Confederation. I think it worked there because those folks all knew each other and they could walk up to each other. They could walk on the land. They could see the impact of the decisions that they were making. We don't have that. We haven't had it for a very long time. And at this point, I don't think, I think a lot of our voting, and I'm going to get a lot of pushback on this, I think, I think it's a lot of performative, particularly for president, because the Electoral College can do what it wants. Yeah. Uh, you're not going to get pushback from me because I've been at a loss for how to understand that for a, a, lot, a long time. Do you think the Electoral College, well, it certainly produces results that are un- that seem undemocratic. <laughs> um, that are literally not popular. <laughs> yes, exactly. Is there a way around that? Is there a way? I mean, I, I think that there's the thing now that the states are trying to form a pact to only give their votes to the popular, the result of the popular vote in each state, something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There, you know, there's, there's tinkering that, goes on right um, and again you know like the long meandering path to a more perfect union I I feel like the pressures that are are going on right now are going to force a significant change at the federal level because particularly like those are I'll speak for myself, out here on the West Coast, I've lived my entire life on the West Coast, even though I was born in Massachusetts. When we see all of the presidents and most of the people in front of the microphones 
being the heads of very powerful communities, etc. All coming from the land east of the Mississippi. We do not feel represented. We do not feel that the Washington DC and the political machine has much to do with us. And, you know, I remember during the pandemic as the federal government was dithering about <laughs> the, the three governors of the West Coast got together and agreed to support each other and make these sweeping agreements that would help keep people alive and safe. And I thought about that. I'm like, could that even be possible on the East Coast? I don't even know how many governors there are on the East Coast. Hmm. Mm -hmm. More. <laughs> more than three. A lot more than three. <laughs> right. I'm trying to do quick ge ge geography math. So given that, where where do you think we're going? Is there is there a form of representation that could work for the masses? Is it a different form of government that will eventually be what, what's better for everyone? For more of us, I guess? What I've been watching at the federal level is a continued, I'm going to call it a disintegration of relevance. And I think about Octavia Butler's prescience mm. with the parable of the sower and the parable of talents. And she was already seeing, you know, global climate change having a huge impact and how the lives of people and the, at the federal level, it just became so much background noise and that what you had to do to survive had to do with your immediate locale and where you could be and who you could interact with. I think, I think that's where we're going unless the, the, the status quo people release their death grip on this dying system. They're just going to pull us down. And, you know, thinking about this current majority in the Supreme Court wanting to use historic precedent to set the path forward is insane is absolutely insane. When this went down, um, I shared a brief text conversation with a black friend of mine. And he said, you know, I know this is huge. I can't imagine what you're going through right now. And I said, I think you can, because we're on a slippery slope to becoming property again. Mm. That is the history of the US, that some humans are property. And if the Supreme Court is looking to historic precedent to set the path forward, that's where we're going. Mm -hmm. That does not <laughs> relinquish fear in me. <laughs> um, but I have certainly had those fears given where we are at. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's scary, but at the same time, you know, our little, little mammal minds we are not wired for understanding things that big. We are not wired. I mean, this is this is part of why climate change is such an untenable beast is 
it's there's a term called the Abilene paradox, which is a state or a situation that emerges because of the actions of a group of people, any one of which did not want this occurrence to happen. No, nobody on the earth wants the earth to become unhabitable for humans. Yet we're all participating in that because we cannot wrap our little mammal minds around a planet that we are making so we can't live here. We're just, you know, just going to work. We're just driving our car. We're just running the air conditioning because it's becoming too hot. We're just doing what it takes to take care of our own and keep body and soul together. And there's not a lot of choices for Americans particularly to do otherwise. I think about like just within my household, trying to get people to not use so many disposable things like reduce, reuse, recycle. The first one is reduce. Don't bring so much garbage in the house. Stop buying stuff. Fix your old car. Yet the, the power of stop shopping is the way more powerful than the power to vote. If we stop buying all these new things that they want us to consume to, to numb out the fear that they are pumping towards us, they'll pay attention. Hmm. So that's, that's an act. Well, it's a, it's an action item and it's something that we each can give some thought to and try to do. And I agree that it is, it's hard to see the totality and in the moment when you're just in target and want to buy a thing, you know, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) It's not easy. So yeah. Parting thoughts on this, on all of this, anything you want to share? Um, just, we have to be kind to ourselves and to the people around us. I've even, you know, gotten into heated arguments with people in Seattle about having compassion for Trump. He has no friends. No one likes him. He's mentally ill. He's being used by everyone around him. And how absolutely miserable that must be, even as I cannot abide anything that man has done or said that I've heard. He's, he's another human being having a really tough time. And if we can extend compassion and wrap that with our fear, not to defeat the fear, not to overlay it, because we still need to listen to that fear. We still need to pay attention to what is important for us. And it's going to be different. What you're afraid of is different than what I'm afraid of. We may be afraid of the same things for different reasons. You're a black woman. I'm a white woman. We have different experiences. We're on different ends of a continent. And we share a lot of things and we're different in a lot of ways. And if we can hold each other in compassion and kindness and move from there, paying attention to what's important, I think that's going to help a lot of us. Thank you so much. This has been a fantastic conversation. I could talk to you for hours, <laughs> and I have, but we've, uh, we've got to close this. Thank you so much again. Thank you, Robin. <laughs> Thank you.
You got questions? We got answers. And today's question is from our friend Kevin King. Kevin asks, Mercury's going retrograde on September 9th. Do you prepare for it and how? <laughs> Do you want to start? You can start. <laughs> no. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I find the whole Mercury retrograde thing really silly. And at the same time, I'm a little superstitious about it. <laughs> like, I admit that. And I kind of almost don't like knowing when it is because it's like, then I'll, then I'll notice things and be like, oh, well, Mercury retrograde. And it's yeah. just, I don't, I kind of don't want to concern myself with it, <laughs> to be honest. However, I did one time, I had to fly somewhere where I was like on a plane on Friday, Friday the 13th during Mercury retrograde. And I like... And a full moon? or <laughs> I don't know about that. But I made up a stupid rhyme in my head that was like a, a spell to like be safe. And, and I knew it was very silly and I did it anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> how about you? Oh, well, okay. I have, I have a uh, love and love hate relationship with astrology to, I mean, I used to be really, really into it. And then I went through a phase where I got rid of all of the books except for the ephemeris. And it's like one of those confirmation bias things, you know, because I remember being at a gig uh, during a Mer Mercury retrograde and every single band, including ours, had a serious technical issue during their set. One band's, one of their amps blew a fuse. My guitar player broke four strings, not all at the same time. <clears throat> and I, <laughs> and, and the band after us, there was another issue with their shit. And then there was the times I kept noticing more car accidents during Mercury retrograde and all these other stupid things. And, and, and I remember it was either Bat or Kevin giving us, sending around that orange magic square to put on your computer background. <laughs> that will keep your computer safe during Mercury retrograde. I had that on my on one of my computers until I got sure, rid of that computer. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then, you know, the hands of change orange candles that were charged during when Mercury was direct that you burn it when it's when it's retrograde and it kind of makes everything okay. And, you know, I, I've done all of those stupid things. I don't do that anymore. So I don't know. I kind of want to remember what sign it's in. It's, this is like my love-hate relationship with astrology because I will go, it's all bullshit. And then I'll go look up, okay, it's, in, it's at the 15th degree of, of, uh, <laughs> of Leo. So that means it's conjunct with this. And it's like, you know, so. <laughs> I think if it's, if it, you know, if it's a lens that feels useful to you, why not? It doesn't hurt to burn a candle, you know, I guess. Well, like. Depends. Yeah, don't leave it unattended. Well, yeah, yes, there. <laughs> that's that's important. <laughs> anyway, thank you for your question, Kevin. Yes. And I'm going to sign off. So I am Robin Renee, and you can find me on Facebook at Robin Renee Fan, or Instagram at Robin Renee Music, and on Twitter at Spirit Rock Sexy. And if you're on Discord or travel in the subgenius circles, you can find me as Andrew Genus. And I'm Wendy Sheridan, and you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Wendy Cards, on Twitter at Wendy Designs, and on Etsy at Wendy Cards with a Z. 
Uh, and I actually got on Discord last week, and I'm there as Vox Woman, and I don't know how active I'm going to be on there, but I one of my Facebook groups moved to Discord, so I kind of they're forcing me to get on that platform <laughs> now. So, so I guess thanks. Uh, <laughs> And remember, you can always reach out to us on social media at Leftscape. So please do come say hi and send us your questions. And until next time, be well. Keep dancing. And keep left. You've been listening to the Leftscape podcast. Sound engineering by Wendy Sheridan. Show notes by Robin Renee. Fake sponsor messages by Ariel Sheridan. Web hosting by InMotion. Remote recording by Squadcast. If you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Leftscape. Become a patron of our show for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash Leftscape. Thanks for listening.